freedom. I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear that word. For me, it's Aretha Franklin. For others, it may be something else. Freedom is the watchword of the day, isn't it? Hard to think of a more consistent demand from the world around us than freedom. And I'm not just talking about Brexit. I'm talking about every area of life in the world that we know. We're used to the demand from teenagers. Every generation is used to that. But for us, it's the whole generation, isn't it? It's everybody. What a timely thing then to be considering this topic this morning, God's sovereignty and human freedom. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us in that? Our Heavenly Father, this subject touches a nerve for us. Our freedom is very precious to so many of us. So we're going to need your hand upon us this morning. Breaking down stubborn wills and creating malleable hearts. Might you enable us by the power of your spirit to listen and listen well and to get our thinking in line with yours. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, they are wonderful words, aren't they? Those words that Paul started us off with this morning. Those verses from the end of Romans chapter 11. I hope that simply hearing those words at the start of our time would have done its work of casting our eyes and our minds heavenwards. If you're familiar with the book of Romans at all, you may know those verses come at the end of a big, long reflection on the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness in particular to his people and to his promises. But actually, they look back much further than that. Here in these verses of Paul's, he's pausing, as it were, to take a breath after everything he's written so far in the letter. He's spoken of many things. He's spoken of the sinfulness of humanity and the righteousness of God and justification by faith and the freedom of the believer and the work of the Spirit and much else besides. But now, as I say, he takes a step back, takes a deep breath and turns his face heavenward to celebrate all that God has accomplished and the way he's accomplished it. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, I'm not going to comment in great detail in these verses, but as Paul shines his spotlight onto the character of God here. Let me encourage you to follow the track of his beam and at least log in your mind the two areas of God's character he's illuminating for us. 
One of them is the divine mind. You see that? The wisdom and the knowledge of God, his judgments, his paths. Verse 34, the, the mind of the Lord. That the knowledge and the wisdom of God is simply beyond our ability to, to fathom. If you are a theologian, you might say, well, God is omniscient, all-knowing. And more than that, omnisapient, all-wise. He knows the future as fully and as completely as he knows the past. He knows me as an individual better than I know myself. His mind just functions at a totally different frequency to yours or mine. That's one patch on the character of God where Paul shines that light of his. But there's a second. It's his activity. Verse 35, who's ever given to God that God should repay them? That is, God is not a receiver. He's not a banker with whom you can build up a credit balance uh, ready to withdraw whenever you like. He's not somebody you can manipulate or put into your debt. He is fundamentally not a responder at all. He's an initiator. Verse 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things. He's the source of everything. He is the agent of everything. And he is the goal of everything. If you want to understand the world around you or even your own life, don't look at the library or online or, or in the mirror. Look at God. It all starts with him. It all ends with him. So you see what Paul's driving at here. He's saying God's knowledge is complete. He is the one who, as Isaiah 46 uh, verse 10 has it, declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. He's got it all up there. And God's activity is everywhere. He is the one who, Ephesians 1 verse 11, works out everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And the fact that his knowledge is complete and his activity is everywhere is, says Paul, something to be celebrated. To him be the glory forever and ever is how that little doxology finishes. But here's the thing. Not everybody here I know will be a Christian believer, but if you are, you're likely with me so far, in principle at least. The question though is, are these perfections in God really a cause of celebration for you? Or do the implications of all this actually get you a little bit worried or cautious? Or just a bit ambivalent. Ambivalent to the point of wanting just to tone it down a little bit. You'll be familiar, I guess, with the concept of an exclusion zone. If you're my age or older, you've lived in the UK all your life. You may remember the Falkland Islands. There was a little bit of an argy-bargy going on down there uh, a few decades ago. And uh, the UK government set up a 200-mile exclusion zone around those islands. 
Well, the, the, the idea was that Argentine ships and planes could go anywhere in the world, could coexist very happily with any other craft anywhere in the world in general, but not around there. The specific area around the Falklands was sacrosanct. There was only room for British forces there. Woe betide any foreign craft who strayed into that exclusion zone. It's become more and more common in recent years for Christians to want to set up exclusion zones for God's knowledge and God's activity. We set those exclusion zones around our own front doors, that is the most personal areas of our lives, areas where we don't actually want or expect that divine knowledge and activity to operate, God-free zones <clears throat> that we declare. Now, one of them is our own activity, our, our own experience of pain, I should say. Our experience of pain. What could God possibly have to do with my suffering? We'll be thinking about that tonight. But the other a very common exclusion zone we set up for God is our decision-making. Surely that must be an exclusion zone for God. I mean, if God were active in my decision-making, wouldn't that make me just a puppet on his string? Wouldn't I become less than human in some way? Wouldn't I lose my freedom? Well, that is our question for this morning. Welcome. How far does God's planning and his activity extend into my personal decision-making? How far am I actually a free agent when it comes to making those decisions? Well, what does the Bible have to say? Well, first of all, here's the question. Does God get involved with my personal choices? Does he get involved? Imagine, if you would, the most likely person you can think of to be able to make completely independent decisions and see those decisions become reality. Who would that be? Who could do such a thing? Well, presumably, the person in your head is somebody of some considerable power. Maybe a, a leader, a monarch. And not just a monarch of the British variety, someone who's just a figurehead, a ceremonial monarch. No, a proper king with an army behind him. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. A king of the kind you might have seen roaming around 3,000 years ago when the book of Proverbs was put together. Listen to the start of Proverbs chapter 21. In the Lord's hand... King's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. That is, even the most powerful person imaginable has their decision-making, that's what heart is about, has their decision-making channeled by God himself. And if you doubt that, well, the Bible's chock-a-block with examples I take a bad decision made by a king, Pharaoh, not letting the people go from Egypt. The example was on Boris Johnson's lips just the other day, so a topical one for many of us perhaps. But do you remember that decision? 
and how it came about? Well, it's told in different ways, but one of them is there in Exodus chapter 7. This is God speaking, verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. I will do it, says God. I will affect Pharaoh's decision-making. Or, for that matter, take an unexpectedly good decision made by a king. Do you remember when the exiles returned to Jerusalem and the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem began? Well, who was sponsoring that work? Ezra chapter 6, verse 22 the Lord had filled his people with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God. Extraordinary. Or forget the most powerful people for a moment and think instead about the most powerful forces at work in a person's life. In Judges chapter 14, you meet the teenage Samson. He's enjoying a trip away from home uh, and uh, on the trip, he falls head over heels in love with one of the local girls. Well, mum and dad are not best pleased, but he's insisted that she is his future. Get her for me, he says. Interesting tone. She is the right one for me. Start of Judges 14. But what was really going on in this infatuation? Well, we're told in verse 4, it was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. God was inside Samson's head, even at the level of who he was falling in love with. Or maybe um, step back from powerful people and powerful forces and think about decisions with powerful consequences. doesn't get much more powerful than the decision to start trusting Christ for your salvation, does it? How does that happen? We'll hear it from the lips of Jesus. John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Hear it from the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, God made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this... Faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Or hear it in the life of that uh, early woman convert, Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And on it goes. It's quite clear God is sovereign over our personal choices, even in the most powerful of us or in the most powerful forces in our lives or in the areas with the most powerful consequences for our lives. His sovereignty is seen right through the realm of human decision-making. But that is not to say that you and I are simply passive agents 
Far from it. The Bible's very clear that you and I make real responsible choices all the time, every day, and we are fully accountable for those choices that we do make. I mean, think about the commands that we receive in the Scriptures. They're given very clearly with the expectation of a decision, aren't they? We need to make that choice to obey or not. So another scene from the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the end of Joshua, finally taken possession of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Joshua says to them, what, it's time to make your choice about where your future will lie, what it will look like as you take up residence in this land. Joshua 24, verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your, your father served or the gods of the Amorites, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's clear which option God wants them to choose, but the question is still, which will they choose? What will they decide? There are major decisions to be made by people like you and me, and they have major consequences. Uh, remember, Jesus talking about the consequences of accepting him or not. John 3 verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It's your choice, he's saying. Believe, don't believe, up to you. But know what follows from that choice. It's big, So there it is, the Bible's answer to our question. Very clear indeed, isn't it? When it comes to human decision-making, it's all down to God. And uh, when it comes to human decision-making, it's all down to you. Well, what do you do with that? Where do you go with that? Which is it? Well, that uh, is a question that has exercised lots of minds over the years, and some of those minds have been high-octane minds. Let's be very clear about it. Brain power has oozed into this little conundrum. So let me mention some of the main approaches that have been made. Well, one of them is to, to play down our human responsibility. The modern missionary movement, as I'm sure you'll be aware, is often thought of as beginning with William Carey. He was a cobbler, he was a shoemaker, felt a real burden to bring the gospel message to the people of India. So he approached the elders of his church and sought their guidance. And this was apparently what he was told. Sit down, young man. If God chooses to convert the heathen, He'll do it without your help or mine. Now, happily, he wasn't stopped by that, but do you see what they were saying? They were saying that for people to become Christians, they don't need to hear the gospel and think about it and make a decision to respond to it. All that hearing and considering and deciding process can be just cut out. All that needs to happen is that God to take his divine remote control and zap them. And they'll suddenly start crying out, Jesus is Lord. 
Now, that's a fairly unusual position to take these days, but there are those who are not that bothered about evangelism, taking the gospel out, and their reason is that, well, God's got his elect, and so obviously somehow by hook or by crook they'll respond to him. He'll make it happen somehow. What's all the fuss about? And you see how that downplays human freedom and responsibility in decision-making. And, of course, it completely contradicts Paul's own missionary example. Through the book of Acts, if you read it, you'll see him going to great lengths to make gospel contact with people. And when he does, he'll talk publicly. He'll talk privately. He'll, he'll talk persuasively because he wanted them to think through a decision they have to make and to come to that decision of their own free will. It doesn't work to play down human freedom and responsibility. It just doesn't chime with the New Testament. A much more common approach today would be uh, to play down God's involvement. Maybe, for example, God really operates as a kind of cruise control sovereign. You know how cruise control works. It is my favorite gizmo in the car. I love it. Wonderful. Most of the time, you just cruise down the motorway, just flick it on, and then relax. Sit back, not constantly glance at the thing to see if you're speeding or anything like that. And if at some point there is a situation you're going to have to negotiate, well, you could just hit the brake or the accelerator, and you're in control override enabled. Negotiate whatever it is that's in front of you, then flick it on again and sit back once more. Now that, I think, is how many of us think about God's involvement in the world and particularly in our own decision-making. He generally just leaves us to it. He doesn't get involved. He respects the exclusion zone that we set up around our decisions. Maybe if we're about to muck up something really badly, he might sit up and take over the controls for us. But otherwise, it's a very simple kind of tacit power-sharing arrangement. You guys handle the everyday stuff. I'll just drop in occasionally and do what I need to do to make sure the whole thing doesn't go pear-shaped. The problem is, it just doesn't seem to fit with the Bible's picture of God, does it? God cares about the small things just as much as the big ones. Matthew 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. There is nothing too trivial for God to be concerned about. Remember Ephesians 1, verse 11, God works all things. All things, not some things. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Or indeed, just remember where we started this morning at the end of Romans 11, for from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. God doesn't take His hands off the controls for a moment. Or maybe it's actually 
even less divine involvement than that. Maybe he's just a ceremonial sovereign like our own after all. That is, his human government, that's, that's you and me, by the way, his human government makes all the decisions that need to be made undisturbed. And all he has to do is just sign them off, ratify them. His sovereignty, in other words, consists in simply responding to and confirming our decisions. Now, I don't know about you, but I found people arguing that's what's going on in that controversial doctrine we know as predestination. Have you heard this one? God knows in advance who is going to choose him, and he responds by choosing them. After all, isn't that what Romans 8 says? Answer? No, that's not what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says this, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is, Paul is not talking about God knowing in advance that somebody might choose him. He's not talking about knowing in advance that anything. He's talking about a relationship that God is setting up. It's those he foreknew. He foreknew people, relational knowledge. He's talking about God setting up a relationship with individual people like you and me in advance, and then in the light of that relationship he has set up in advance, initiating the first of several steps to ensure that that potential relationship becomes a face-to-face -face reality. You see? Remember where we started? At the end of Romans 11, for from him and through him and for him are all things. God does not subcontract. There's no power sharing with God. There's no exclusion zone building. He is fully involved. But here's another issue. Supposing, despite all we're seeing here, you could somehow show that God wasn't, in fact, involved with our human decision-making. I know that contradicts everything we've just seen, but supposing somehow you could explain away everything I've said and every verse in the Bible, maybe you've, maybe you've done that. Have you solved the conundrum? Well, no, you haven't, because you've still got a problem. What about the fact that he just knows what what you're going to do ahead of time. See, where does that leave you? If you stop to think about it, you've still got a problem with human freedom, haven't you? Suppose, uh, this is uh, just a fanciful thing, suppose you invited me around to gate crash your Mother's Day extravaganza over lunch today, and you, I came around to your place, and you somehow knew, before I even got there, that uh, I was going to ask for seven helpings of strawberry ice cream. Just to suppose that you knew that was going to happen. Now, I've been, I, I didn't even know you were going to invite me yet. I, don't even, I haven't thought about the meal. But it doesn't matter. You know what's going to happen. Now, fast forward to the moment of the dessert being laid out. Orlando, would you like some dessert? Now, am I 
free at that point to say anything other than seven helpings of strawberry ice cream, please. Am I? I can't be, can I? If you already know it's coming, and you're always right, it is already a fixed event before I've even made the decision, isn't it? Now, I know we're straying into the realm of philosophy here, but it is a quite a tricky problem. A number of people have figured that out, and so they've had to come up with a response, which is a third approach. And the third approach is to downplay not only God's activity, but God's knowledge. Because that is where you're going to have to go to preserve total human freedom. God can't even know ahead of time what your decision will be. Now, how can you do that and preserve any sense of God being, well, God? The picture that's been used in the past sometimes is that of a chess grandmaster. God is like a very, very good chess player, it's said, who is sitting at a board responding to every move that you make. At any point, you are totally free to make the move you want to do. God has nothing to do with that decision. And God has not the foggiest idea of what you are going to do, what move you are going to make. He doesn't know. But God is so good at the game that whatever move you do make, he has an answer for it that will move things inexorably towards the end game that he wants. Now, do you see what that picture is doing? It's a very clever picture, isn't it? He doesn't intervene. He doesn't even know what your move will be. But he still gets things where he wants to get them to. Very clever in terms of philosophy. What's the problem? The problem is we are now a million miles away from the God of the Bible. What does the psalmist say? He says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. What does Isaiah say? The Lord is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He knows it all. He's got it all taped. The God of the Bible. And so you see the problem with all these different solutions to the conundrum. They attack the issue with human logic and not... Bible logic. And so we're still left with the the question unresolved. When I make a decision, is that me deciding or has God already already decided what I'm going to decide? Well, let me suggest three ways forward that I think may be helpful to us and try to follow the direction the Bible takes us in rather than our own speculative, philosophical wonderings. First, what we need to do is to unpick how the Bible speaks of God's will. Uh, What if you're a fan of Tim Vine? You know Tim Vine is a Christian comedian. He's always winning those Joke of the Year awards with those one-liners of his, conjunctivitis.com. 
Now there's a sight for sore eyes. And multi-story car parks, just wrong on so many levels. Tim Vine makes his living out of puns. Words which mean two or more different things. When he comes across words like that, he, he makes it hilarious. The problem is, more often, when we come across words with different meanings in normal life, it's just confusing. And one of the top words or phrases in the Bible like that, which has a number of different meanings and so confuses us, is the will of God. The will of God. When you just skim read the, the Bible, you'll probably get a pretty one-dimensional understanding of the will of God. You read all those phrases, you know, God desires this, God wants that, God decrees the other, God says this, do this, don't do that. If you want this, you'll be rewarded, otherwise you'll... We read all those, and we just lump all those ideas into one kind of thing over there. It's, that's, that's God's will. But that is actually a very lazy approach when you think about it. Even human beings don't have a single flat will like that. Imagine I say to my fussy child that I want him to eat all his greens before he leaves the table. Tears, screaming, crying for the next 20 minutes. It will not change anything. I want you to finish what's on your plate, I say. But do I want that, really? Well, yes and no. As a tired working man at the end of a long day, what I really want is a quiet, orderly household where I can just flick on some music, collect my thoughts, and unwind a little bit. But I'm not just that, am I? I'm also a dad, and as a dad, I have a responsibility to train my child. And in that role, I want to go through the whole screaming, greens-eating palaver. It might, it might sound strange, but it, the reality is I have two wills operating at the same time there, don't I? Now think about that, and it might just get us into understanding something of the will of God. Sometimes the Bible speaks of the will of God in the sense of what holiness looks like. If you and I are to be as God is, that is to say no to, to sin and, and yes to being conformed to the image of His Son, then this is what it will look like. This is the will of God. God's will is that... We have no other gods but Him, that we make no idols, that we don't take His name in vain, that we remember the Sabbath, that we honor our father and mother, and so on. We banish quarreling and drunkenness and sexual immorality, that every last one of us professes faith in the Lord Jesus. This, that's what God wants, isn't it? That's His will. Now you might call that his ideal will, his will that expresses most fully who he is and what he's made us for with no accommodation to, to sin or anything like that. It's his ideal will. But other times the Bible talks about the will of God in the sense of simply what he has decreed will happen taking account of all the realities of a sinful world. You might call that his plan will. This plan will is not necessarily the things that he approves of, but what he decides 
for reasons we may not always understand, is going to happen. It includes big things and small things. God is a macro manager as well as a micro manager. It includes things both wonderful and terrible, things both joyful and heartbreaking, things which bring honor to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and things which really don't. And yes, in case you are wondering, it is impossible to go against God's plan will, partly because we don't know what it is. We get very little of the blueprint of the plan ahead of time. But even if we did, it's not open for discussion. There is no triumph for the human free spirit here. That's just for the Hollywood big screen. When it comes to God's plan will, God's what God wants, God gets. Listen to how Isaiah, the prophet, explains the link between God's plan and history. He says, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah 24, verse 14, if you're taking notes. Now, if you don't understand or appreciate these different ways the Bible speaks of God's will, you'll never be able to fully grasp why you can at the same time be free to disobey God's will, but not be free to step outside God's will. Both are true. That's the first piece of the jigsaw to get in place. Here's the second. The other thing that's needed is to unpack what we mean by free will. That's the phrase we bandy around all the time, isn't it? Free will. Most people take for granted that we have free will. That's the one fixed point in this whole area. But if we're trying to think Christianly, we've got to be clear on what we mean by free will. Do we mean the ability to make authentic decisions or the ability to make autonomous decisions. Did you get that? Are we talking about authenticity or autonomy? Are we talking about making decisions that truly reflect who we are, what we want deep down? Or are we talking about decisions in which God plays no part but just leads us to it? As Bible believers, we are able to affirm very happily the first, but not the second. The choices we make really are what we want deep down, but that is not to say that that deep down will of ours is a God exclusion zone. When Samson fell in love with that Philistine girl, he really did fall in love. It really was all him deep down. The feeling was authentic. But God really was active even there. It wasn't autonomous. So maybe talking about having authentic will would be better than talking about that more ambiguous phrase, free will, just to pin down exactly what we mean. 
But whatever terms we choose to use, we have to make this kind of distinction because if we don't, there's just no way of staying true to the biblical data. We need to, to follow the contours of the Bible even where they don't fit the contours of philosophical discussion and thought. So unpack what you mean by human free will. That's the second thing. And now for the third, which is simply this. Learn to live in a territory, not at a map reference. Learn to live in a territory, not at a map reference. Let me explain what I mean by that slightly obscure thing. If you're like most people, you think of truth as a bit like a, a treasure map. There are all these kind of lines of information, lines of data, clues, whatever you want to call them, and they all converge in one place. X marks the spot. You just got to find X. Follow all the lines and you'll, you'll, you'll make it. If you can't find the answer, you can't find X, it can be hugely frustrating. The reality is, though, that there are some issues where that approach just doesn't work. Where the most our fallen minds are likely to get is not X marks the spot, the map reference, but X marks the territory, the area. That is, we get some clear boundary lines marked out, truths we must not go beyond. So we know the answer must lie somewhere within that territory, that area, but those lines marking out the zone are actually as close as we're likely to get to X itself. The Trinity is one of these issues, isn't it? One line is the God is one line. Another line is the God is three line. There are actually a few other lines there. But it remains the reality that the territory marked out by those lines is really as far as we can get without going into speculation. Can't completely nail it down. And the relationship between God's sovereign will and our authentic choices is also one of these areas. The, the, the zone, the territory, is marked out by two clear lines. One is the truth that God is totally sovereign of all things, including our human decisions, but that sovereignty doesn't trump our freedom. And the other is that, that uh, the other truth is that human decisions are real and authentic and made freely. But that freedom and accountability never trump God's sovereignty. Those are the two lines. Now, in the end, you might struggle to come up with the exact map reference where X might sit, where both those things are true. So the wise thing to do is what? Surely it is to concentrate on holding those lines that are clear, that is, holding to each of those two truths individually and trusting that given that it's God who stands behind them, they do actually fit together, even if it's in a way that we can't fully understand just at the moment. Now, that doesn't mean there are no helpful ways of thinking things through. I do a lot of work with students down in Southampton. We have a large number of students in our church body. And I often throw out this or that illustration to try to help them get into the zone, into the territory. But in the end, 
But the most reliable illustrations are there in the Bible itself. Take one from the Old Testament. We had the reading just before I came up from Genesis chapter 50, where we have the character of Joseph. Joseph, as you'll recall, is the one with the dubious fashion sense, technicolor dream coats and the like. I'm not sure he'd go well in these uh, very well-dressed, smart streets of Edinburgh. I haven't got time to take us through the whole story, but suffice it to say that, well, it starts with 11 brothers ganging up on their 12th brother, Joseph, and eventually selling him into slavery. But after quite a long and torturous route, it ends with that 12th brother, Joseph, becoming chancellor of the neighboring country and using that high and lofty position to preserve his entire family from death by starvation. Years later, Joseph reflects on the past and the way he was treated by his brothers all those years ago, being sold as a slave. And he says this to his brothers. This was the verse that we finished with, I think, earlier on in our reading. You intended to harm me, but God intended it that is the decision you took, for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And you see what's going on there? Same action we're talking about, the selling of Joseph into slavery, but two causes of that action, at one at the same time, it was a result of a badly motivated human decision, but at the same time, the result of a good divine plan. Both are true at the same time in the same action. Helps us to understand how actually decisions can be made. What about an example from the New Testament? It's the most extraordinary example of all, I think. It's the explanation for how the death of Jesus came about. What was really going on when Jesus went to his death? Who was responsible? Well, uh, I suppose the Jewish leadership angled for it. They tried to get there, but they didn't have the power. They had no cards to play to enact the death sentence. Now, as the Roman governor, wasn't it Pontius Pilate? He was the one who made the decision to execute Jesus. It turns out that's not all there is to say about it. Here in Acts chapter in fact, sorry, that's a typo on the screen, Acts chapter 4, there is a scene where we find Peter and John speaking at a, at a prayer meeting, having just been released from custody in the early days of the Jerusalem church. And they start leading this prayer to God about the recent death of Jesus, and they say this, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. It was their decision, in other words, to cause harm to Jesus. They were the ones who conspired. But then this, they did what your power, remember they're talking to God here, what your power, God, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you see? 
They made the decision and they're responsible for it, but they're treading a path that in God's plan they were always going to tread. Real choices, real responsibility for those choices. But in the background, God's will being enacted through those choices. Good decisions, bad decisions. Decisions to start following Jesus, decisions to do harm. But all the time, God's plan being enacted through all of them. And that is where we live. That is the territory in which we as Christian believers occupy. I'm going to suggest we just spend a moment of quiet reflecting on our decisions. Maybe there's a particular decision you've made recently that's caused you some concern. Try to work out it was the right thing to do and what it came from, what it motivated, what motivated it. Just think through that for a moment and shine the light of God's truth onto it. And then I'll lead us in a prayer.